Welcome to the Cato Institute. <clears throat> I'm Walter Olson with Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. I'd like to start by asking you to turn off your cell phones, uh, <coughs> mute them, strangle them, bury them. And we are here today to celebrate the publication, I think the publication date is tomorrow, of uh, Damon Root's splendid new book, uh, Overruled, The Long War for Control of the U.S. Supreme Court. And I say splendid not just because this is the most Cato-centric book that I've read in a <laughs> long time. Um, indeed, many of the most interesting scenes took place in this building, but because it is a wonderfully lucid and well-written exposition of some difficult uh, legal concepts in a way that everyone can grasp uh, with wonderful pace and concision. Uh, <clears throat> Damon Root is a senior editor of Reason Magazine. Uh, his writing on legal issues has been uh, awarded prizes and nominations, including the R.C. Hoyles Prize for Journalism and a, a nomination for the Los Angeles Press Club uh, Best Magazine Feature or Commentary Award. Uh, his writing has appeared in many newspapers. He's uh, spoken here at Cato before. Uh, he is a graduate of Columbia and lives in the New York area, and this is his first book. Uh, our commenters today, both of whom are indeed also characters in this book, uh, <clears throat> as you find when you read it, as you will buy it and read it outside, uh, Damon will be signing them. Um, Jeffrey Rosen is the president and chief executive officer of the National Constitution Center uh, in Philadelphia, a group you should all learn more about. Uh, it is the first and only nonprofit, nonpartisan institution devoted to the study of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, he is on leave as a professor at George Washington University Law School. He is the legal affairs editor of The New Republic. He is a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings, and he is among the best-known commentators on American law, an eloquent representative of the judicial restraint viewpoint, uh, also the author of several books on law. Uh, Roger Pilan, <clears throat> my boss, is the founder and director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. He's the publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review and an adjunct professor at Georgetown. Uh, he served in the Reagan administration in five senior posts, including both state and justice departments, uh, and <clears throat> has won awards for his writing and his uh, influence on legal uh, thought over the years. He has both a JD from the George Washington University School of Law and an, a PhD from the University of Chicago. A bit about format, uh, you're going to hear from uh, our three speakers. We are then going to have questions and answers, after which we will adjourn upstairs to the uh, <coughs> uh, George M. Yeager Conference Center. Um, uh, I will give you instructions on doing that. There will be a buffet lunch uh, there, but uh, as I say, when our program is over, don't go away uh, because uh, you're not through with us. Um, <clears throat> please join me in welcoming Damon Root. Thank you, uh, Walter, for that very warm introduction. Uh, thank you to the Cato Institute for hosting this wonderful event. It's a real honor and, uh, and pleasure to be here today. And um, thank you also to this distinguished panel. It's an honor to uh, share the stage with, uh, with you folks. I, uh, I wanted to begin today by uh, reading you a, a pair of quotations that sort of set up the issues that this book uh, discusses. The first comes from a, a letter written in 1920 by Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. 
He writes, if my fellow citizens want to go to hell, I will help them. It's my job. The second quote comes from uh, Chief Justice John Roberts' 2012 decision upholding the constitutionality of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, uh, also known as Obamacare. He writes, it is not our job to protect the people from the consequences of their political choices. In other words, Roberts might have said, uh, let, let the people go to hell. Now, at, at a glance, this might seem like a sort of uh, pair of strange bedfellows. Uh, Justice Holmes was this progressive era jurist who uh, made his name by urging the Supreme Court and arguing that the courts should uphold progressive era economic regulation, that the, that the court shouldn't be second guessing the economic uh, judgments of reform minded lawmakers. Uh, his views were hugely influential on progressive jurists and also on the, on the New Deal later on. Uh, John Roberts, by contrast, well, you know, he's nobody's idea of a progressive. Uh, he, you might say he's the uh, epitome of today's conservative legal establishment. So what is a conservative like uh, Chief Justice Roberts doing invoking this progressive hero, Oliver Wendell Holmes? Well, the answer is that both of these men are exponents of the philosophy of judicial restraint or judicial deference, which is the idea that judges should defer to the will of the majority, should refrain from overturning uh, democratically enacted laws, and should respect the policy judgments made by the elected branches of government. As, as Roberts put it in the healthcare case, it is not our job to overturn this, this law. And furthermore, although judicial deference um, may have been a progressive touchstone in the time of Oliver Wendell Holmes, these days it is also a touchstone of conservative legal jurisprudence. In fact, it's been a mainstream conservative legal idea for the past 40 or so years. As an example of that, uh, consider Robert Bork, who I would argue has been the most in, one of the most influential conservative legal thinkers of the past half century. Bork was a, a full-throated proponent of Oliver Wendell Holmes-style judicial deference. In his book, The Tempting of America, Bork wrote, quote, in wide areas of life, majorities are entitled to rule if they wish, simply because they are majorities. Now, now Bork applied this majoritarian deferential approach most famously uh, when it came to the issue of privacy. In 1965, the Supreme Court issued an opinion in a case called Griswold versus Connecticut. Now, in, in that case, the court struck down a Connecticut law that had made it a crime for married couples to obtain and use birth control devices. The court said this, uh, this, law, this, this law violated the right of privacy. Well, Robert Bork hated that opinion. He thought it was liberal judicial activism. He thought that the courts had no business second-guessing what, what the state legislature had done in terms of, of criminalizing uh, birth control. He said, uh, quote, the only course for a principled court is to let the majority have its way. So this approach, the Holmes-Bork approach, let the majority have its way, this is what John Roberts invoked in the, uh, in the healthcare case. But the problem for Roberts in that case was that um, very few conservatives wanted to join him for the ride. Conservatives overwhelmingly wanted the Supreme Court to strike down the Affordable Care Act in its entirety, to overrule the president and the Congress that had crafted this, uh, this, this national legislation. And that was something the Supreme Court 
has not really done since the New Deal, since uh, what was perceived as a conservative Supreme Court battled Franklin Roosevelt over his economic uh, reform agenda. Now, this other approach, strike down Obamacare in its entirety, this approach also has its roots in the late 19th and early 20th century, except this school of thought was not inspired by Justice Holmes. It was inspired by the legal figures who opposed him. The conservative and, to be a little anachronistic, libertarian judges and lawyers who urged the court to strike down reform legislation during the progressive and the New Deal eras. Um, now, foremost among these figures was a uh, Supreme Court justice named Stephen Field. He was appointed to the court in 1863 by President Abraham Lincoln. And if Oliver Wendell Holmes was the Supreme Court's first great champion of the will of the majority and judicial deference, then Stephen Field was his nemesis. Field spent three decades on the bench, and for our purposes today, I just wanted to highlight three sort of interlocking ideas that he, he put forward during that time. First, he said that the 14th Amendment, which had been added to the Constitution in 1868 after the Civil War, said the 14th Amendment protected, quote, the right of free labor, which was the right of individuals to go into an occupation of their choosing and also for individuals to run businesses uh, without being subjected to arbitrary, unnecessary government regulation or inter government interference. You might call this economic liberty. Second field held that government regulations are only permissible when they serve a valid government purpose, such as protecting health, welfare, or safety. And third, Field argued that it was the job of the courts to police the other branches of government to make sure that, um, that, that, that regulations were legitimate, were serving a legitimate end, and were not an illegitimate infringement on liberty. He said that the courts must, quote, examine into the real character of the laws and should not accept the declaration of the legislature as conclusive. So no judicial deference there. Now, Field didn't always practice what he preached, but... He, he laid out these ideas in a way that contrasts nicely with Holmes, and I begin the book by, by sketching out both of, those, both of those views. Now, beginning in the late 1970s, to move forward a little, the aggressive legal philosophy that had been associated with Justice Field and his allies and successors comes, starts coming back to life. And, um, and it comes back to life thanks to uh, a new breed of libertarian legal activists, law professors, lawyers, uh, scholars, and they, they're setting out at this time to challenge both liberal and conservative conceptions of the law. Uh, these libertarians, some of whom are in the, in the room here today, such as, such as Roger, uh, they want the courts to scrutinize the other branches of government, and they have no patience with the idea of judicial deference. They want the courts to strike down any state or federal law that violates their broad constitutional vision of limited government and personal and economic freedom. One libertarian theorist, writing in a book published by the Cato Institute uh, in the 80s, called this approach, quote, principled judicial activism. Now, these people, these libertarians, are the sworn enemies of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. They're also the enemies of Robert Bork. Um, we'll call them the libertarian legal movement. And that is one of the stories I tell in my book, is the rise of this libertarian legal movement and its prominence today in the legal debates we're having. So what I do is I tell the story of these two warring approaches, the Holmes-Bork approach on the one side, let the majority have its way, and the libertarian legal movement approach on the other, Justice Fields, scrutinize the laws, look into the meaning of the act, don't accept what the lawmakers say is conclusive, second-guess the legislatures, basically. 
And in the first half of the book, I lay out the origins of this, of this uh, long war, which, which occurs in the period after the Civil War, the Progressive Era, and the New Deal. So this is the great battles over economic regulation that the courts were involved in. And I profile Justice Field, Justice Holmes, and I sketch out the big cases that their views are involved in and the ways that they come to blows. From there, I move to the uh, mid-20th century. And this is when we start to see the, some of the, what we think of as the great modern liberal triumphs, such as Brown versus Board of Education. Now, something that's, that's sort of forgotten today is that at the time that Brown came out, old school judicial progressives, people that were in the mold of Oliver Wendell Holmes, were not thrilled about the Brown decision. Today, it's almost unimaginable to be a liberal and to criticize Brown v. Board. But in fact, Judge Learned Hand, one of the most important progressive uh, legal thinkers of his time, he denounced uh, Brown v. Board of Education and called it liberal judicial activism. And he thought it, it, it was guilty of the same activist sins that had marred the conservative Supreme Court cases that had overruled the New Deal. And so I, I talk about that, follow this thread of the debate. Now, at the, at, the, at the time, around this time, is when Robert Bork and the modern conception of legal conservatism, which embraces judicial deference, I, as I argue in the book, Bork sort of dusts off the progressive case for judicial restraint and puts it into service on behalf of conservative legal goals, such as battling privacy, this privacy decision and, and in the abortion context. And then in the final sections of the book, I tell the story of the rise of today's libertarian legal movement, which has been waging this war of ideas against both the liberal and conservative uh, legal establishments since the late 1970s. And I, I wanted to mention one important early battle, which, which I think my, Walter might have alluded to, which happened here in Washington, D.C., when our host today, the Cato Institute, they played host to a conference uh, devoted to the topic of economic liberties and the judiciary. Among the participants that day uh, was uh, Richard Epstein, who is one of the guiding lights of the libertarian legal movement. He was a law professor at the time at the University of Chicago. He's now at NYU. And uh, Richard Epstein argued that the courts should play an active role in supervising the other branches of government and should play an active role in defending economic liberty from the reach of lawmakers. Epstein's sparring partner that day was Antonin Scalia, who at the time was a judge at the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, here in Washington before he goes on to the Supreme Court. And Scalia advanced the Holmes-Bork view that the courts should not be overturning these economic regulations, should not be active in defending an economic liberty, but should defer to lawmakers. Scalia said whatever... Um, evils may have accrued from the undue judicial abstention in the economic field uh, are not, are, it would be far worse. Those evils are, are far outweighed by the evils that would accrue if the courts were felt that they were empowered to start striking down uh, the will of the majority. Now, Epstein, he came out swinging against Scalia in his arguments. He said, under the Scalia view, which we could call the Holmes-Bork-Scalia view, it is, quote, it is up to Congress and the states to determine the limitations of their own power, which, of course, totally subverts the original constitutional arrangement of limited government. Epstein concluded by saying that if you're going to take the text of the Constitution seriously, it required, quote, some movement in the direction of judicial activism on behalf of economic rights. So you can see these views really colliding and colliding between libertarians and conservatives, not just what we think of as the normal right-left debate. 
Now, in the, in the, in the last few chapters of the book, I, I, I explain how all of these factors come together to, uh, to have shaped some of the biggest legal battles of our own time, of the last decade or so, the legal battles over gay rights, eminent domain, the Second Amendment, and finally health care reform. And I've got a chapter discussing each of those. Now, today I thought I would spend just a little bit of time discussing two cases, uh, one from the past, one from the present, which illustrate the, these competing legal philosophies, show them in action, and, uh, not, and not just show the stakes, but also the way that the conflict doesn't always conform to what we might think of as our typical left-right uh, categories. So the first case is called uh, Buchanan versus Warley. This was a case decided by the Supreme Court in 1917. Buchanan is not a super famous case. Uh, most people probably haven't heard of it. Uh, it, should, it should be more well-known. For one thing, it was a rare early victory in the legal fight against racial segregation and against Jim Crow. It was also a, uh, one of the, the first significant early win for the NAACP, which, of course, goes on to become arguably the most important civil rights organization of the 20th century, the United States. At issue in Buchanan was a Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky uh, residential segregation law. The, under this law, there were, there were white blocks, there were black blocks. Black people couldn't live on white blocks, white people couldn't live on black blocks. The NAACP mounts a legal challenge to the law, and the man who led that challenge was NAACP president Moorfield Story. He was the first president of NAACP. And Story is this fascinating and really underappreciated figure in American history. He was an elite lawyer. He'd been president of the American Bar Association. He was also a committed anti-imperialist. In fact, he was the first president of the Anti-Imperialist League, which was this organization that forms in opposition to the U.S. involvement in the Spanish-American War and attempt to acquire the Philippines. But, but sort of for our purposes today, he's notable, uh, he's recognizable as a libertarian. He believed in property rights, free trade, the gold standard. And as I say in the book, if today's libertarian legal movement had a patron saint, Moorfield's story uh, would be it. So story leads the NAACP in challenging this Jim Crow law. And he says, it was a, he says the law was a racist interference with property rights and with economic liberty. He said it destroys, without due process of law, fundamental rights attached by law to ownership of property. And one of the precedents Story cites in his legal arguments in the brief he submits to the court is the 1905 case of Lochner versus New York, uh, which, was that, which was then as now the court's most prominent uh, case striking down an economic regulation in the name of economic liberty. It was the most famous, some might say infamous, Jeff would probably say infamous, um, case that, that did that. And it's recognizable as a libertarian decision. And it's a, it's, a, it's a case that libertarians claim and say the outcome is basically correct. So in other words, Moorfield's story led the NAACP by making a libertarian argument in favor of property rights and economic liberty against this Jim Crow law. And this argument done under the 14th Amendment. The state of Kentucky, by contrast, advocated judicial deference, the Oliver Wendell Holmes approach, argued that the Supreme Court must defer to local judgment and uphold the Jim Crow law. Here's what the, the state said in its brief. Quote, whether the legislation is wise, expedient, or necessary is a legislative and not a judicial question. Let the majority have its way. The courts should hands off, butt out. The Supreme Court sides with the NAACP. The law is struck down. It's a great early victory for civil rights and very important in, in things to come. 
And the upshot of the case is that judicial action in defense of liberty won out over judicial deference to majoritarian power. Libertarian approach beat the Holmes approach. The, the second case I want to discuss today is uh, perhaps more familiar to some of you. It's going to be very familiar to one person in the audience today, and that's District of Columbia versus Heller. That's the 2008 decision where the Supreme Court said, yes, the Second Amendment secures an individual right, not a collective one, and yes, the amendment protects the right to have a handgun at home for self-defense. It's a case where the court struck down Washington, D.C.'s handgun ban. Now, in, in, in a sense, it's hard to, uh, it, it seems like District of Columbia v. Heller is just a classic conservative sort of case. The, not only does the court vindicate the Second Amendment, which is, a, which is a constitutional provision that is widely cherished by conservatives, it also did so using the language of originalism, which is the, the school of thought, uh, very popular among conservatives, that said the Constitution should be interpreted according to its original public meaning. But yet, uh, in, in, in a move that surprised many observers, a very prominent legal conservative came out and denounce the Heller case. Now, that conservative is uh, Judge Harvey Wilkinson, who sits on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit down in Virginia. And he denounced Heller as a shameless piece of right-wing judicial activism. Here's what, here's what Judge Wilkinson wrote about the case. He said that Heller, quote, encourages Americans to do what conservative jurists warned for years they should not do, bypass the ballot and seek to press their political agenda in the courts. Heller may be a triumph for conservative lawyers, Wilkinson wrote, but, quote, it also represented a failure, the court's failure to adhere to a conservative judicial methodology in reaching its decision. Wilkinson even compared Justice Scalia's majority opinion in Heller to the Supreme Court's 1973 abortion rights decision, Roe v. Wade. Now, I don't have to tell you that comparing Scalia's handiwork to Roe v. Wade is not the nicest thing you can say to a guy like Scalia. But, but Wilkinson did have a point. Scalia's ruling in Heller marched the Supreme Court into the thicket of gun control. And he led the justices in overturning a piece of legislation crafted by local officials directly accountable to the residents of the city. It was nobody's idea of judicial deference. And Wilkinson also had a point about methodology. He's right. District of Columbia versus Heller was not a, a conservative case. It was a libertarian case. It, it exhibited libertarian legal methodology. The original lawsuit that sparked the case was conceived, litigated, bankrolled, strategized, won entirely by a small team of libertarian lawyers, one of whom is in the audience here today, and these lawyers are affiliated with two of the libertarian legal movement's principal organizations. One of them is the Cato Institute. The other is the Institute for Justice, a public interest law firm located across the river in Arlington. Heller was a triumph of libertarian legal methodology and a repudiation of the deferential Holmes, Bork, even Scalia, yet he writes the opinion, alternative. If you look at the case, the tactics, the troops, the vision of the libertarian legal movement proved indispensable at every stage. And those libertarian factors made it the victory that it was. And as I argue in the book, and I've got a chapter talking about Heller and also its follow-up case, McDonald versus Chicago, where the Second Amendment was applied to uh, state action, not just 
a federal enclave of D.C. As I say, that with, with, with D.C. v. Heller, the libertarian legal movement proved itself an independent force to be reckoned with, one that can challenge not just the liberal orthodoxies, legal orthodoxies of the time, but also the, the conservative ones. It set the pace on the, on the, on the legal stage. Now, in, in conclusion, I just, I just wanted to say that um, what I tried to do with this book was tell the story of these two competing ideas, um, two competing visions. And each vision has its own take on, on the proper role of the government and the proper role of the courts in our society. And this fundamental debate between these, these two ideas has been shaping American law for a century and a half. And I tell the story from the Civil War basically to the present. And this fundamental debate really goes to the heart of our constitutional system. And it asks us, what sort of system do we want? What sort of constitutional system do we want to live under? Should the Supreme Court respect the will of the majority and defer to the policy choices made by elected officials? The court, after all, is the least democratic branch of our government. Perhaps it should respect the more democratic branches. Or does the Constitution empower and, in fact, authorize the Supreme Court to protect a wide range of individual rights uh, from the reach of lawmakers, even when those lawmakers have the will of the majority firmly behind them. So I said those questions have shaped American law for, for a century and a half. They continue to shape it today. And if you want to understand what's happening at the Supreme Court now and what's going to be happening in, in the years to come, then you, you need to understand this story. Thank you all very much for, for coming here today. I look forward to taking questions. Jeff Rosen. Well, thank you so much. It is always an honor and a great pleasure to be here with my friends at the Cato Institute. Uh, I bring you greetings from the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, as Walter said in his very kind introduction. The National Constitution Center is a unique treasure in American uh, constitutional discourse. It is the only place in America that has a charter from Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And that means we bring together all sides of the constitutional debates that rivet America, including the ones that Damon has identified so vividly, uh, libertarian conservatives, judicial restraint conservatives, uh, progressive living constitution liberals, and we allow citizens to make up their own minds. We do that in our great We the People podcasts, which you can hear online. We do them at the museum in Philadelphia, and we're creating the best interactive constitution on the web, co-hosted by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society that will bring together all these perspectives. I begin with that plug for the NCC, both because it's my job to plug the NCC, but also because it's relevant to my response to Damon's uh, superb book, Overruled. Um, this is a superb book because it accurately and candidly describes a fissure that has indeed, as Damon says, defined American law over the past century. He is correct that the battle for the courts between partisans of judicial deference and those who argue for uh, principled judicial activism has indeed been the central constitutional drama for more than a century. And what is so refreshing and useful about this book is that Damon does not play semantic games trying to redefine judicial restraint and activism to mean what it doesn't. He recognizes that restraint involves deference to legislatures and activism involves an attempt to second guess them. He correctly contrasts the Holmes-Bork 
view with the Field and Barnett view. And he says that that battle continues to be at the core of all of our most important constitutional dramas today, separating Holmesian conservatives like Chief Justice Roberts in the healthcare case from more libertarian conservatives like Justice Thomas. Um, I am here today to argue, uh, to make three points. First, that Damon's book, although historically accurate, embraces uh, a historically bad idea, namely that when courts over time have embraced uh, economic judicial activism as opposed to restraint, they've tended to provoke judicial backlashes that have harmed the causes they've tried to help and led to the most notorious constitutional decisions in history, including Dred Scott, the New Deal decisions, and Roe v. Wade. Second, I want to argue that this vision of judicial activism is not consistent with the original understanding of the Constitution, either at the time of the framing or more relevantly at the time of the passage of the 14th Amendment. And third, I want to say that this vision of economic judicial activism is an especially bad idea in a polarized age when citizens disagree legitimately and vigorously about the meaning of the Constitution and for courts to try to impose one contested vision on an unwilling nation is likely to fuel the partisan flames. So aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, I think it's a great book, normatively. <laughs> I, I, I don't ch challenge any of his superbly accurate description. I'm just saying, uh, I'm, I'm urging you as libertarians to resist the, the normative prescription, namely the siren call to embrace economic judicial activism in the future. So as uh, Walter said in his introduction, I, like Roger, have a bit role in this book. I first... Um, a few years ago in the New York Times Magazine, described a uh, movement of libertarian lawyers uh, led by the Cato Institute and the Institute for Justice and scholars like Richard Epstein and Randy Barnett, who I said were attempting to resurrect a vision of economic judicial activism that would lead to the invalidation of healthcare regulations, environmental regulations, and so forth. I was uh, subjected to uh, lots of... Uh, pushback for this article. It was claimed that this whole movement was an invention of my fertile mind and that of the uh, photography editors of the New York Times who came up with some especially unfair and terrifying photographs of uh, the main protagonist. But I was delighted to read in this book that essentially my narrative is entirely reinforced by Damon. I too, like Damon, quoted the famous debate at Cato between Justice Scalia and Richard Epstein as a central defining movement uh, in the battle over conservatism. Uh, and all of the predictions about the kinds of laws that people like my good friend Randy Barnett would try to challenge were vindicated in the healthcare litigation where Barnett did exactly what he said and I said. So I, I think it's nice that we're all agreed on the facts. There is this real battle for the soul of the courts, and that's a fine thing because the Constitution is a conversation. It is one in the battle of ideas, and it's a perfectly legitimate debate to have. My little bit role in this book comes up specifically in the discussion of the healthcare litigation, where at the time the court was debating the case, I wrote a piece in the New Republic, uh, basically saying that Chief Justice Roberts had to choose between two, the two visions of judicial conservatism that Damon identifies, uh, the Holmesian vision of restraint and the libertarian vision of activism. I wrote, as Damon quotes this uh, piece, the Chief Justice has to decide what kind of legal conservatism he wants to he wants to embrace, if the Roberts Court strikes down health care reform by a 5-4 to four vote, the Chief Justice's stated goal of presiding over a less divisive court would be viewed as an irredeemable failure. In writing this, I thought that I was merely stating the bleedingly obvious. I, I had the privilege of interviewing the Chief Justice during, at the end of his first term as Chief, 
where he embraced a sort of Holmesian vision of restraint. He said most questions should be settled in legislatures. He said that in a polarized time, it was especially important for the court to avoid five to four Republican and Democratic decisions that second-guessed acts of legislatures, and said he'd make it his mission as Chief Justice to put the institutional legitimacy of the court first and avoid those ideologically polarized activist decisions. Um, so I, I just thought I was noting that he made this promise and expressing the hope that he would uh, live up to his vision. And of course, I was absolutely delighted and not at all surprised when he did precisely what he said. There was a mini flap over the piece, George Will, with whom uh, 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 Judge Wilkinson and I had had a dinner, a lovely dinner at George Will's house with Randy Barnett in honor of Wilkinson's book, Praising Judicial Restraint, right before uh, the piece came out. And at this dinner, we debated the very question that Damon is discussing, whether uh, Wilkinson and I were correct to embrace uh, the Holmesian vision or whether Barnett was correct to embrace the libertarian vision. And afterward, uh, my friend uh, George Will wrote a piece saying I was trying to bully or intimidate the chief justice by uh, noting this tradition of restraint. And he called on Roberts to show a steel of spine and to resist the ministrations of liberal commentators like me and Patrick Leahy and President Obama. I was flattered by the notion that anyone would think that the chief justice would care about a column I wrote. And of course, he didn't. He was totally indifferent to uh, any of the commentary in the case, but was merely doing precisely what he said and embracing a vision that he cares deeply about, as his citations to Holmes showed. So I think it was um, the sort of conspiracy theorizing was a, a distraction from the fact that this was not a battle over personalities, but a battle over ideas, that the chief justice is a principal devotee of a legitimate tradition that I enthusiastically embrace. And I think that uh, he should get huge credit for his courage in the face of um, great uh, pushback from uh, more libertarian-minded conservatives. Um, all right, that's current affairs. Let, let, let me just quickly try to argue that this libertarian tradition is a bad idea historically and is not consistent with original understanding. We won't have a long debate here, and there have been many rigorous debates at Cato starting uh, under Rogers' inspired leadership, you know, back in the 1990s when I first had the privilege of meeting Roger. It's been a very long time. I came to D.C. in 91 when your great op-ed appeared, and we have, for many happy years, been debating these uh, competing notions. I think that, uh, you know, in terms of the founding, uh, just to say quickly, although it's certainly true that the framers embraced a natural law philosophy and had the vision of a government of enumerated powers and that Madison considered the preservation of private property to be the first object of government, neither he nor Jefferson thought that the judiciary would be the primary enforcers of this vision. We know this because Jefferson at the end of his life actually repudiated the entire idea of judicial review and called on the states and said to secede from an overzealous union presaging the Civil War. It was a sort of sad end for the writer of the Declaration to be embracing the arguments of Calhoun and the secessionists. And, and uh, uh, Madison, too, believed that a Bill of Rights was unnecessary or dangerous originally because Congress would not uh, infringe its uh, enumerated powers. And he believed that all three branches had an obligation to engage in constitutional interpretation, uh, certainly not in any way anticipating the kind of judicial supremacy that would make the judges the primary guardians of enumerated rights. More relevantly, and I think one of the wonderful things about this book is the rigor with which it addresses the Reconstruction era. It's the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the Equal Protection of, of the 14th Amendment that incorporates the Bill of Rights against the states and is responsible for most of our current um, constitutional controversies. And although Damon accurately describes uh, much of uh, that history, 
I think he skims over the fact that uh, none of the framers of the 14th Amendment thought that judges, again, would be the primary enforcers of privileges or immunities. Uh, John Bingham, the, the James Madison of Reconstruction, explicitly thought that Congress would be the primary enforcer of the newly enumerated rights, as Michael McConnell has uh, confirmed. And uh, it's also uh, clear that the... Um, Bingham may have seen a distinction between the, ten, the, the rights enumerated in the first 10 amendments to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which he thought might get a version of strict scrutiny or heightened judicial protection, and those economic liberties that are not enumerated in the text of the Bill of Rights, but which the framers did consider to be privileges or immunities, like liberty of contract, which was embraced in cases like Corfield and Coriel, which Bingham thought would get a lower standard of scrutiny. That economic tradition of judicial activism and enforcement of property rights is not a founding era construct at all. It comes from the Jacksonian era and from lower courts, from commentators like Thomas Cooley and so forth. And while it's true that some framers did say that the 14th Amendment would eliminate class legislation, there's just no evidence at all that they believed that the judges would be the primary enforcers of these rights. So Stephen Field, like his modern successors, Randy Barnett and, and other principled libertarians, uh, was just basically making it up. He, he, had a, he has a principled vision of the Constitution, um, but it was not one shared by the framers of the original Constitution or of the 14th Amendment, and embracing a kind of natural law theory and his own vision of what he thought limited government entailed, he decided to uh, try to enforce um, this vision through the courts with catastrophic consequences. You can quibble, as my good friend David Bernstein, uh, uh, affiliated with Cato, does about whether Maximum hour and minimum wage laws are a good idea economically, but the Lochner decision was properly attacked by Justice Holmes uh, for this immortal reason. The Constitution, he said, is made for people of fundamentally different ideas. That was Holmes's central insight. And for the court to have second-guessed and struck down laws embraced by a majority of states in the name of a contested vision of social Darwinism that, uh, as he said, a majority of the country didn't embrace, led to a judicial backlash and ultimately, by the New Deal era, to a judicial retreat. I do think it's important for libertarians to confront the fact that Lochner, the New Deal cases, Roe, Dred Scott, these are the, the wages of uh, conservative libertarian judicial activism, especially those striking down federal laws, which um, are unusually controversial and tend to provoke judicial backlashes. And just descriptively, it turns out that the court, although in theory the least democratic branch, has tended to follow pop popular conceptions of the Constitution over most of its history, and on the rare occasions when it hasn't, it's provoked a judicial backlash and a popular retreat. Uh, I think the last thing I'll say is that I don't agree that the choice that libertarians or anyone else faces today is between Holmes and Field. Those are the absolute extremes. And Holmes, it is true, embraced a kind of radical judicial abstinence that resulted from his traumatic experience at the ba Battle of Antietam and in the Civil War where he lost all faith in constitutional ideals and came to believe that the majorities had to be able to work their will over minorities in the legislature because if they didn't, open violence would result. And that's why he said shocking things of the kind that Damon quotes like, if my fellow citizens want to go to hell, I'll help them. It's my job. It's why he uh, would have dissented in uh, Buchanan and Worley, the segregation case, according to an unpublished opinion uh, provoked by uh, Benno Schmidt, and why the, the idea that court should do nothing is too extreme. It's like the guy who asked for you know, ice uh, uh, on the Titanic, uh, you know, I, I, I asked for ice, but this is ridiculous. Um, you, a complete uh, refusal to strike down any laws is not 
necessary, nor is the Fieldian alternative, which is a willingness to strike down laws embraced by a majority of the country in the name of contested constitutional theories. My alternative, and the one that I uh, love to urge upon you um, now, is my hero, Justice Louis Brandeis. Whenever I have a hard constitutional question, I ask, WWBD, what would Brandeis do? Brandeis, here, good, we have a fellow uh, Brandeisian in the audience, and Brandeis basically embraced judicial deference to legislatures. He thought the courts should strike down few laws, especially at the state level, where he thought that the states were laboratories of democracy and should be free to experiment in the economic arena. But he was willing to strike down laws that clash with clearly enumerated rights. So he wrote the greatest opinions defending free speech and striking down unreasonable searches and seizures of the 20th century. He was the greatest theorist of privacy and technology of the 20th century, and that was because he, like Bingham, understood that you have to enforce rights that are written down in the Constitution vigorously and translate them in light of new technologies, but generally courts should be hesitant to bypass the ballot, as Judge Wilkinson said, and pursue a political agenda judicially. Uh, so I will leave you with that thought. Congratulations to Damon. Um, please applaud the accuracy and rigor of his narrative, but please resist embracing it at all costs. Thank you so much. I'm sure that advice will be taken under advisement in this audience. Uh, uh, but I do um, want to thank uh, Jeff for joining us here. He's been a good sport many times in coming into the belly of the beast to uh, resist the um, uh, Neanderthal ideas that come from this institution. Um, when uh, Jeff uh, and uh, Jay Wilkinson join ranks, uh, at, as they did at the George Will seance, uh, I think that uh, we can say that Damon has hit the nail on the head. Uh, he struck a chord as to what the uh, camps are all about. This book is a splendid book. I encourage you all to get a copy. It covers a vast area of constitutional and legal history, but it does it in a way that is extraordinarily readable for the layman. I mean, you will learn so much from this book, as I did, who spends his life in these issues. It is just extraordinarily well written, and he'll be glad to sign your uh, book afterward at lunch if, if you wish. Um, for my part, I'm going to save my fire with respect to what uh, Jeff has said until um, uh, the the exchanges afterwards and before we turn to Q&A, I'm going to focus instead on um, <clears throat> why it is that the conservative uh, originalists have so feared judicial activism. Now, the obvious and immediate answer is because of what the Warren and Burger courts were doing in the 50s and 60s, but that I don't think gets to the heart of the matter. Now, with respect, I will take this shot at Jeff already, with respect to uh, the original understanding of the role of the courts under the Constitution. Um, Madison, I dare say, had a rather different view uh, than what you heard from Jeff. But of course, with respect to the framers, you can probably find a snippet from the framers that will justify any position you want to take if you look uh, far and wide uh, enough. They were not always consistent and indeed often consistent. But in the main, I think you will find that they stood very clearly for a robust judiciary. Here's Madison on the occasion of his introducing the Bill of Rights before 
before it was uh, affirmed by the uh, Congress and then sent out for ratification, that the, <clears throat> it would allow for independent tribunals of justice, which would be an impenetrable bulwark against every assumption of power in the legislative or executive. That is a engaged judiciary. And here is Hamilton. Now, Madison and Hamilton disagreed on many things, but on this, they did not disagree. In Federalist 78, whenever a particular statute contravenes the Constitution, it will be the duty of the judicial tribunals to adhere to the latter and disregard the former. There again, we see an engaged judiciary. Now, it seems to me that the very design and structure of the written Constitution speaks of a robust judicial review. First of all, it's a written document, which, like all written documents, must be interpreted, and it's interpreted by a court before whom uh, is brought, before which is brought, cases or controversies by individuals, either one against another or one against the government. And so it has to be interpreted, and it falls to the courts by virtue of their function to adjudicate these cases according to that written document. Secondly, they provided for, the framers did, an independent judiciary with life tenure, the idea being that they would be immune from political uh, uh, influences and be able to judge the cases on the merits. Thirdly, you look at the very design of the Constitution and you see that it clearly calls out for a robust judicial review, starting with the doctrine of enumerated powers, the idea that the, that the Congress's powers are limited and enumerated in the document. Secondly, with the provision of the Tenth Amendment, which makes it explicit that the Congress has only delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers. Thirdly, when you look at the Bill of Rights, you see, first of all, in the, the bill itself, and secondly, in the debate that surrounded it, that it was very clear that there was resistance to a Bill of Rights because they understood you cannot enumerate all of our rights. We have an infinite number of rights. And so for that reason, they wrote the Ninth Amendment, which says that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Notice, retained by the people. You can't retain what you don't first have to be retained. And so this theory of natural rights is the very bedrock of the Constitution from which all else follows, in particular, its theory of legitimacy. Now, <clears throat> you look at the 14th Amendment and you see the re re return to the original understanding by, uh, by uh, Lincoln and by the Republicans who were responsible for the 14th Amendment, the return to the first principles of the Constitution. Now, in the Bill of Rights and in the 14th Amendment, obviously they wrote those uh, rights in general terms because you cannot spell out every right that you're going the right of fit parents to control access to their children, something that came up before the court in a case called Troxel v. New, uh, v. Granville in the year 2000. These are rights that you're not going to put in the Constitution. And so you have to understand the theory of rights as setting forth broadly stated rights from which are derived more particularly stated rights. Okay, so 
when you look at the framers, how they structured things so carefully, why is it that the conservatives have feared to repair to the original understanding of this document and the role of the courts under it? Well, first of all, some of it is not from fear. Some of it is from a plain misreading of the Constitution. And Alexander Bickel and Robert Bork are paradigmatic examples of this when they saw the Constitution as a small-D democratic document, essentially a Constitution that, as Damon said in his remarks, authorized uh, majoritarian rule in wide areas of life. Nevertheless, Bork continued, in some areas, majorities are entitled to be free, or minorities are entitled to be free from majority rule. Um, this gets Madison exactly backwards. Madison stood for the idea that our first moral principle, as is set forth in Jefferson's Declaration, is that in wide areas, individuals are entitled to be free simply because they are born free. Secondly, our second principle is that majorities are entitled to rule where we have authorized them to rule. And so what you've got is a sea of rights with islands of majoritarian rule. That was the original Madisonian vision. And so the first point I would make with respect to why is there fear of judicial activism is that the Borkians and others of their ilk simply misread the Constitution. Secondly, uh, judicial activism, uh, as I said at the outset, was very real in some extent uh, during the Warren and Berger years, but not nearly to the extent that many of the conservatives thought. Uh, Brown was perfectly correctly decided as a result, even if the opinion rooted in psychological concerns was something to be left, left something to be desired. Um, with respect to Roe v. Wade, which is the cardinal case that is pointed to by the conservatives, there, it seems to me, they have a case. And indeed, no less than Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued in 1993, 20 years after Roe came down, that we'd have been better off if we'd left that to the states, which were already liberalizing their laws. Why? Because abortion, unlike the use of contraceptives, as in a case like Griswold, involves line drawing, a drawing not only when life begins, right claiming life begins, but line drawing with respect as a corollary when criminal acts begin. That is to say, uh, when you take a baby's life a day before birth, most people would call that infanticide. You would find a very different opinion if you take your, uh, if you take the zygote's life uh, a day after contraceptive. And so, between those two poles, it seems to me that reasonable people can have reasonable differences about where to draw the line, and that indeed is a kind of thing that you want to leave to the legislature to decide in like in all likelihood different states would draw the lines at different places and that's the best you can do with a complex line drawing case like that involved in Roe v Wade as opposed to a clear up or down case as in Griswold another reason of course is that the um the conservatives have failed to understand the theory of rights that stands behind the Constitution. Um, and we see this in a case called Washington v. Glucksburg in 1997, where uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, seeks to 
give us the methodology for uh, determining what rights are protected under the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. And he says, first of all, the, uh, the right must be deeply rooted in the nation's history, and second law, secondly, it must be carefully defined. Well, you can't determine if it's deeply rooted in the nation's history unless you first carefully defined it. And, of course, even if you have have carefully defined it, it does not follow that if it is not deeply rooted in the nation's history, it is not one that is held. After all, many of the rights we enjoy today were not deeply rooted in the nation's history, such as the rights to be free from the kind of legislation we saw during the Jim Crow era. Um, a, another reason that the, the, the uh, conservatives tend to fear judicial activism um, is that they, as I said, this is correlated to what I've just said, they don't understand the theory of rights, which is rooted in property and contract, property broadly understood as lives, liberties, and estates, as Locke put it. Indeed, the notion of self-ownership, which Damon brings out, especially in his discussion of the slavery issue in the antebellum period. This idea of self-ownership and property, and then you move from there to contract, gives you the two foundations of the common law. Edward Corwin makes it very clear in his little volume, The Higher Law Background of American Constitutional Law, that these are the bedrock principles of the common law, and the common law was what the framers had in mind primarily as the law under which we would live, not vast statutory law dealing with everything from our health care to our retirement, and so on and so forth. And so when you look at Corwin and you see that he says that uh, the, um, f from the 14th century onward, um, the common law was thought to be higher law because rooted in right reason, you see that what he is talking about is the same thing the framers were talking about, not natural law rooted in theological considerations, but natural law rooted in pure reason. And it turns out that when you look at it that way, you have a bedrock foundation from which to adjudicate the many cases that have come before us. And I will conclude with an illustration of that. When you look at the kinds of cases that have been decided over the course of the 20th century and into the 21st, under the 14th Amendment, cases such as Lochner, such as Myers v. Nebraska, which held that uh, people that people had a right to teach their children in a foreign language. Uh, Pierce v. Society of Sisters, that people have a right to send their children to a non-governmental school. Griswold v. Connecticut, the right to sell and use contraceptives. Lawrence v. Texas, the right of individuals to engage in whatever sexual practices they, uh, they wish to engage in, including homosexual practices and the privacy of their own home. All of these cases exhibit a single characteristic, namely, they are attacks on legislation that is justified, not with respecting the rights of other people, but simply with reflecting the morals of some part of the community, which are not shared by other parts of the community. And so in each of these cases, the, uh, the uh, government uh, officials that upheld the statute or sought to do so were hard-pressed to do so because they could not come up with a serious rationale for them, except under the so-called rational basis test that came from Caroline Products footnote four, and that is the test through which so much mischief has been done since the New Deal uh, upheld that 
uh, that uh, judicial uh, methodology in 1938. And it did so because only so would you pave the way for the modern Leviathan that we know and love so well today, the Leviathan that has given us the modern regulatory and redistributive state, the executive state through which so much law is enacted. And so I conclude, as Damon himself concluded, that uh, conservatives are coming around because they're coming to see that the libertarians have had the better of the argument. In other words, they are the true originalists, uh, which is, of course, the touchstone that conservatives point to by way of determining legitimacy and illegitimacy in terms of constitutional interpretation. Thank you. While you are thinking up your own questions to ask, uh, we will let the panelists have at each other uh, to respond to what each other have been saying. Why don't we start with Damon? Okay, well, thank you both for your comments. I appreciate it. Um, I'm, I'm glad that Jeff brought up uh, both Roe v. Wade and Justice Brandeis. I thought I'd just uh, address each of those in se separately. For any uh, liberal members of the audience, notice that he included Roe v. Wade as one of the great judicial uh, travesties of the 20th century. Um, that liberals these days are coming back to, to rediscover their sort of progressive era belief in judicial deference. And we saw that during the health care case. The president himself said we've heard for years from conservatives that we should defer to lawmakers. And he, and he thought that that case presented an opportunity for, court to, for the court to do so, and Chief Justice Roberts uh, did so. But if you're going to be consistently in favor of judicial deference, you do have to grapple with Roe v. Wade, um, and you have to... And you have to you have to weigh whether or not your commitment to deference uh, includes giving up that case. And I think that that's, that's a question for, for liberals and progressives to ask themselves. Um, and, and Jeff has obviously sketched out a very consistent um, and very admirably, admirably consistent position on that. And um, so you need to take seriously what he's saying in his arguments. And then as far as uh, Brandeis, um, I also noted that, that the New Deal cases were included in your um, your enemies list of, uh, of, of bad decisions. Well, on Black Monday, uh, when the Supreme Court overturned or issued three unanimous decisions striking down New Deal legislation, Justice Brandeis was, was, with, the, was with the conservatives. He was with the four horsemen in those cases. So we do see uh, Brandeis striking down economic regulation at the federal level, which he, which he thought was, he said it was this business of centralization. Um, so I don't think that he is a, I, I agree that he's a great justice and, there's, and he's very admirable. Um, I'm not sure that he entirely fulfills the, the, the middle course that, um, that you're, you're describing him as, but. Yeah. Uh, thanks for those great comments. On Brandeis, that's a complete confirmation of the point that he was willing to strike down laws when he felt that they clashed with clearly enumerated rights or structural guarantees. And the reason that he was with the conservatives on Black Monday is because he thought the uh, National Industrial Recovery Act was a clear violation of the non-delegation doctrine and separation of powers. But at the same time, that was an exception for him, an unusual case, and in the many other New Deal cases, uh, he dissented from attempts to strike down federal and state laws, most notably in the New State ICE uh, case where he talked about the importance of states as laboratories of democracy. So I think Brandeis is a wonderful model for a willingness to enforce the written constitution, but an unwillingness to enforce the unwritten constitution. And this is the Achilles heel of Rogers 
equally principled uh, view uh, in the Constitution. And now, of course, I carry my National Constitution Center pocket constitution, which we want to rival your Cato Constitution. You've got to do 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 Right. We can have a little Jets and Sharks this Constitution a, here. This one is a foreword by yours, too. A preface re relates the two documents in terms of their Fundamental principles de jour. Yes, it does. This oh. one has a preface <laughs> written by yours truly re uh, relating the two oh, documents well. as well with regard to their fundamental <clears throat> How many principles. have you sold? <laughs> <laughs> we just published this, but uh, I'm happy to give them away for free. Um, you know, the uh, liberty of contract is not written down in the Constitution. The uh, sexual autonomy is not written down in the Constitution, which is why the conservatives, like Justice Scalia, were so right to stress the importance of textualism, and why when you start arguing for the vigorous enforcement of unenumerated rights, uh, about which reasonable people can disagree, and whose constitutional status is hotly contested, then you often produce backlashes. I was surprised, Roger, that you seemed to go wobbly on Roe and suggest that that should be left to the states. I understand there are some at Cato who take the consistent position that both Roe and the health care mandate, uh, you know, were, were correct, that basically the same, and I don't know if Cato filed a brief or it was some of your um, excellent scholars, arguing that the right of autonomy recognized in Roe and reaffirmed in Casey against Planned Parenthood, which Justice Kennedy said the right to define one's own conception of meaning of the universe and the mystery of human life, Justice Scalia ridiculed that as the sweet mystery of life passage, but that robust notion of personal autonomy many libertarians invoke both to defend the result in Roe v. Wade and to say that the same right should strike down the health care mandate. I think that's Randy Barnett's position, and that's a very principled position. I wonder why you don't embrace it. As a matter of, uh, I, I'm th thanks, Damon, for the shout-out to my own position on Roe. I have, like, ever since I became legal affairs editor of the New Republic, in the midst of the 1990s, my gosh, it was 1992, a long time ago, I've argued that uh, as a pro-choice liberal that Roe was wrongly uh, decided. I agree with Justice Ginsburg, who, who uh, said not that the court shouldn't have intervened uh, at all, but that it might have struck down the extreme Texas law at issue in the case, which was an outlier in the country, by leaving intact the majority of state laws that were um, far less draconian, and that would have allowed the political process to run its course. And that was why, uh, in denouncing Bush v. Gore, I and the New Republic were able to say that Roe and Bush were two sides of the same coin. So we are uh, Brandeisian in that respect. This is the last point. You, the, the cases that you cited, Roger, Pierce versus Society of S Sisters, Lawrence Griswold, you said all of these offend the basic million idea that, you know, my rights stop at the other person's nose or that you can't... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, infringe basic liberty based on moral objection. That's a principle that I embrace personally. I've got a, a etching of John Stuart Mill uh, in my uh, office right next to my uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, uh, images. But uh, how could one claim that the framers of either the original Constitution or the 14th Amendment embrace this position? On the contrary, they thought states had broad power to regulate health, safety, and morals. And we see this again and again. And that's why it was so striking when Justice Kennedy and Lawrence embraced the million position and Justice Scalia objected plausibly, in my view, uh, that this was completely flat in the face of two centuries of regulations, of cockfighting, of uh, alcohol. He even, forgive me, this is mixed... Uh, company, but I'm just quoting from his dissent. He said, this will mean the end of laws regulating masturbation. 
many law students across the country were surprised to find out that this had been illegal, but after um, some research was done, it appeared that it was just laws regulating assisted masturbation, in other words, prostitution that had been uh, banned, and uh, Justice Scalia was entirely correct to say that it was long taken for granted that this was in, within the state's police power. So all this is to say that although I embrace Lawrence and uh, the end of morals legislation as a personal matter, to claim that this is deeply rooted in originalism seems to me entirely unpersuasive. And I think it's unfortunate that conservative originalists who are so quick to invoke the framing uh, when it suits uh, their uh, political purposes are unwilling to engage both that history of the regulation of morals legislation and also the entire history of reconstruction, which as I suggest, um, says that courts should be hesitant to intervene on behalf of privileges and immunities and the main enforcement for those rights should come from Congress and not the courts. All right. Uh, I will begin as you began, uh, Jeff, and then circle back to your opening remarks. Uh, in your rejoinder here, you spoke of liberty of contract, as in Lochner, not being found in the Constitution. Uh, it's uh, nowhere written down. Of course, neither is the right of homosexuals to engage in practices in the privacy of their own home written down, nor is the right of fit parents to control access to their children or the right to um, buy or sell contraceptives written down. But all of these, as I said, are instances of liberty, which is written down in the 14th Amendment and is meant to be protected under the 9th Amendment and under the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment as well. Um, and so uh, that you, you can come up with an infinite number, as I said, of rights defending, depending on how precisely you define them, all of which are meant to be protected because they all exhibit that same characteristic, as I said. Namely, they are rights that are exercised and violate in the process the rights of no one else so that statutes that prohibit you from exercising those rights are statutes that can be justified only with reference to such vague notions as morals. And so we come to that uh, element in the traditional police power, and it has always been the most problematic element in the police power because, of course, it can lead to everything from sumptuary laws like uh, dress codes, to uh, speech codes and so on and so forth. And so it, is, it, it doesn't mean that there is no instantiation of morals, and I'll give you an example in just a moment. But it does mean that you have to, when you think about the theory of rights, distinguish kinds of rights as you're working your way through the theory, starting with property, moving out to contract, and then more precisely to, for example, issues like nuisance, risk, enforcement, and uh, remedies, all of which involve line drawing. How much noise can I make before I violate your right to the quiet enjoyment of yours? How much risk can I put you to? These are areas where reasonable people can have reasonable differences, and they are properly turned over to the legislative branch to draw the line where that branch, where the people, where public law thinks it's appropriate, save for the case 
where you've gone way over to the one end or way over to the other end. I mean, if you allowed, for example, to put uh, meat to engage in nitroglycerin experiments in my basement next door to your home, I think you would object. Uh, at the same time, if you are so risk averse that I can barely move in my home, I would object. And so what we have, as in the case of, you mentioned uh, Roe v. Wade, had the court simply overturned the Texas statute, which was an extreme statute, I would have, 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 have concurred with that. But if it's a matter of drawing the line at three months or five months, uh, as uh, might be the case if you left it to the states. And remember, we're talking here about a criminal wrong. When does murder begin? Then that is a police power issue. The general police power belongs with the states. It doesn't belong with the federal government. There is no general federal police power. And so when you raise parades of horribles about if we libertarians had our way, there would be no uh, regulation of health care or environmental regulations and so forth. That's just plain wrong. Health care can be regulated insofar as it involves the theory of rights, insofar as it involves public instrumentalities providing us with health care from cradle to grave, that's a completely different matter. That's a policy with respect to provision of services. It's redistribution from A to B, as opposed to regulatory redistribution, which and, and included in that is regulatory redistribution, as opposed to regulation that is necessary to flesh out the theory of rights as in nuisance, risk, enforcement and endanger and um, uh, remedies. Well, thank you. <clears throat> we have some time for questions and answers now. A few ground rules about the question and answer period. Uh, please wait for me to call on you when your hand is up. Uh, when I do call on you, please wait for one of our helpful people with the microphones to get to you. Otherwise, when you ask your question, not only will our audience not be able to hear it, but the people listening online at Cato.org will also not be able to hear it. When the microphone gets to you, uh, if you have a moment, it helps to state your name and uh, affiliation, if any. Uh, <clears throat> uh, do we have a first question? Yes. Um, Ma'am, in the, in the back there, and then he's second. Yes, I'm Sam Wright, retired Navy lawyer and director of the Service Members Law Center. If Robert Bork had managed to get confirmed by the Senate in 1987 or 86, and if he'd still been on the court in 2008, do you think he would have joined uh, the Scalia decision or maybe written the decision uh, in Heller? You know, for what it's worth, who knows? <laughs> I, I had a wonderful interview with Justice Stevens uh, about a week ago uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, for a constitutional symposium on the legacy of President Ford, co-sponsored with the Ford Library and the Constitution Center. And he said he talked about Robert Bork. He said Bork, he was an admirer and friend of Bork's, and he thinks that Bork became more uh, extreme because he was embittered by his defeat, and had he not been Borked and had served on the court, he would have been a far more temperate justice. The other thing is that uh, Alan Gura is 
here or uh, was um, I um, don't share Jay Wilkinson's distaste for the Heller decision. It seems as a Brandeisian, the Second Amendment is a pretty clearly enumerated uh, right in the Constitution, and you can disagree historically about whether it was viewed as an individual or collective right, but I'm struck that both Alan Gura and his liberal critics, like Michael Waldman in his new book, agree that the Second Amendment does allow for reasonable gun regulations. So Heller strikes me as a a, a relatively moderate textualist uh, decision, and Bork, whose main objection was to unenumerated uh, rights, like the right of privacy, might well have joined it. I think he might have. That was a short question, and we like short questions. Um, You're next, and then uh, you're after. My name is Stephen Shore. Wonderful presentation by everyone. Uh, let me raise an issue that was not talked about, and that's capital punishment, which I think existed in all of the original states. Even the 14th Amendment says without no one should be deprived without due process. But one, a growing opinion is that it is capital punishment is an, a cruel and unusual punishment. I think it's child's play to say that this is not the 18th century interpretation, but um, could one raise that that horrible term, a living constitution, in someday outlawing capital punishment nationwide as a cruel and unusual punishment? That, to me, is a close call. Um, There's no question that that is one area, cruel and unusual, that calls, in which the notion of evolving social values can play a part. But then does it fall to the court to discern those evolving social values or to the political branches? I tend toward the political branches, but again, that's a close call. Just a quick thought on that, and I loved the fact that you're a fellow Brandeisian, I think, but based on your uh, embrace of his name, even Justice Scalia has said that the courts may recognize evolutions in public understanding of what's cruel and unusual, but he says that they should look to state constitutions as evidence of what people actually think. So he objects to cases outlawing the juvenile death penalty and the execution of the mentally challenged because he says that the court is jumping ahead of schedule and picking uh, the wrong denominator. Basically, m- more than half the states that allow capital punishment still allow this practices, but the court is recognized an evolving consensus ahead of schedule. Scalia says if a majority of the capital punishment states actually ban these practices, he agrees that the Eighth Amendment should be interpreted accordingly. More questions? Um, yes, you'll be after. Lisa Garcia, director of the FOIA Resource Center. I appreciated the classic uh, jurisprudence analysis on how libertarian principles are sort of coming to the forefront. But I wonder, since uh, technology and transparency are really dominating the docket these days, if you would talk a little bit about how that plays out in the FOIA world. Freedom of Information Act, for those of you who are familiar. Thanks. The, uh, well, I, I just blogged about a tiny uh, t- fra- fraction of that. It's terrible for the moderator to answer questions, isn't it? But the, um, of course, there, there so often is not a direct constitutional issue raised by FOIA and open records requests. Uh, uh, as we know, in court records, there can be um, uh, more rarely, and uh, twice in uh, recent months, there have been uh, possible oppositions between uh, FOIA and open records interests and the, the Bill of Rights. Uh, first, in the question of whether or not uh, 
uh, gun owners' uh, identities and addresses can be uh, FOIA'd, and more recently in the stripper FOIA case from the state of Washington, in which a man wanted to um, use public records requests to get the names of all licensed uh, exotic dancers in the state of Washington so that he could pray for their souls. And uh, it was widely concluded in the blog world, and I think even by the uh, uh, the court that, that heard it, that uh, this went too far, that um, sometimes FOIA um, uh, intrudes upon uh, constitutionally protected interests, whether it be the Second Amendment uh, or the First Amendment. Um, yes, uh, more questions here and then you're after. Uh, hi, my name's uh, Theodore Gebhardt. This is a question for Roger Pallon. Um Is there a principled distinction between your views and Justice Douglas's penumbras and emanations? And if so, how might you have reached the Griswold result in an alternative frame of reasoning? Well, first of all, I wouldn't have used that language. Um, secondly, uh, I think I would have gone straight to the issue, namely the privileges, first of all, the privileges or immunities clause was meant to uh, protect uh, the substantive rights uh, more than the due process clause. But we lost that in the slaughterhouse cases, unfortunately. And um, uh, I'm interested to know how, whether uh, Jeff thought slaughterhouse was correctly decided. But um, no, I, I would, if it's got to be decided, uh, Griswold, I mean, uh, yes, Griswold under um, due process, then liberty, uh, this is a straightforward liberty case, uh, the liberty of the uh, pharmacist in selling uh, contraceptives, the liberty of people who buy them. Uh, there's a Lochner freedom of contract issue, the liberty of people who buy them uh, to use them. That's just a plain Lawrence v. Texas kind of kind of uh, case. So uh, the difference is just that I wouldn't have used that language. Seems to me that was a clear, just an obvious case. Uh, you wonder why it even, why, well... Connecticut thought it could regulate that in the name of morals. It wasn't enforced. As you probably know, it was a sweetheart suit that appeared before the court, uh, a concocted suit to uh, get a decision on the matter. I wouldn't have used privacy either, because privacy isn't the issue. Liberty is the issue, just as Kennedy said in Lawrence v. Texas. Since you ask, Roger, I'm happy to say I do not think the reasoning of Slaughterhouse was correctly decided. The court was wrong to read the Privileges or Immunities Clause out of existence in a strained and implausible view that everyone from the left and the right agrees is not consistent with original understanding. But the court could have upheld the health law at issue in the case because there was evidence that by putting all this offal into the river and going downstream, uh, there, there was a health uh, uh, risk and the slaughterhouse was open to all butchers, including the recent freedmen. So a much narrower decision would have been better. On the same score, I prefer, unlike this broad liberty of, uh, uh, you know, sexual autonomy uh, reasoning that you've signaled in Griswold, the court could have embraced Justice Harlan's far narrower and more modest view that Connecticut was the only state in the country at the time that banned married couples from using contraception and therefore on grounds of history, tr tradition, and desuetude, basically the country had come to embrace uh, the right. But how is that a constitutional argument? 
Well, it's pretty well established, I think, from cases going back to the 19th century that in trying to figure out which liberties are protected by the Due Process Clause, you look to history and tradition, and you're pretty parsimonious about discerning shifts in tradition unless there's an overwhelming consensus, as in the Eighth Amendment cases we were discussing, that a strong majority of states have come to embrace that liberty as fundamental. And that's what's really at issue with our discussion about the dangers of courts enforcing unenumerated rights. When you start enforcing shadowy novel rights, like the right not to buy health care or broccoli or gym memberships that states have not embraced and that the people have not come to embrace, then you run the risk, as the Holmesian conservatives say, of the judges imposing their own contested vision of the Constitution on an unwilling nation. That's why Brandeis, not that he would never have embraced, uh, enforced unenumerated uh, liberties, but he would want overwhelming evidence that a strong majority of the states and people had come to Embrace it. I think that's the difference. To rest your argument on the idea that Connecticut was an outlier. Suppose it were not 1 versus 49, but 25 versus 25. Um, Neither of those uh, scenarios has anything to do with the text of the Constitution. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's part of the common law method that you've embraced in saying that courts should enforce this unenumerated liberty of contracts. This is what common law courts have done in identifying unenumerated liberties. However, if you want to be a textualist, I think in Griswold you could also have said that the Fourth Amendment prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures uh, was violated by the kind of intrusive evidence gathering that would have been necessary to enforce this Connecticut law. So the spirit, if not the text of the Fourth Amendment, was violated there. Either of those two rulings, the Fourth Amendment or the destitute argument, would be far less controversial either than Douglas's penumbras or your attempt to reframe it as a broad, unenumerated liberty. So you prefer the oblique approach, whereas I prefer the direct approach. And... I don't see how that this is problematic to take the direct approach. The Constitution says liberty. Liberty means liberty. It means liberty of selling contraceptives and liberty of using contraceptives. End of argument. QED. I I think this is important. It's not the end of the argument. It's the core of the argument because it's a question of the abstraction at which a particular right is going to be enforced. And when you choose the most sweeping and abstract formulation of a right— as uh, the court uh, did in Roe or, uh, and in Griswold, then you really short-circuit democratic debate and make the losers feel like their opinions are illegitimate. I, I need to say I sort of earnestly become an evangelizer for nonpartisan debate in this wonderful job at the Constitution Center. And the longer that I do this job and the more I teach constitutional law, the more I agree with Holmes that there are good arguments on both sides of most constitutional arguments. The Constitution is made for people of fundamentally different points of view. And when you say so confidently, well, the other side is simply wrong, that, that's unlikely to persuade the other side who feels the same about you. And that is why it is so necessary to define arguments modestly as Justice Alito gave a wonderful speech at the Constitution Center on Monday about the Bill of Rights and one of the 12 original copies we're displaying, and he ended by quoting Learned Hand, the spirit of liberty is the spirit that's not too sure it is right, the importance of judicial humility. It didn't mean total abstinence a la Holmes, but just a certain willingness to concede that your opponents may have arguments worthy of respect rather than ruling them out of bounds. Well, I one think can is say important. that the other side is wrong and even if it doesn't persuade them, still be right. Says you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It would be so perfect to leave it there, but we do have time for one more question. Uh, So, uh, gentlemen, here's some patient. Stanley Cook, a political scientist with the U.S. government. A question not directly discussed so far. 
decisions come down and they're attacked and defended. But other than the academic world, where are the Jeffersons, the Lincolns, the Roosevelts, among others, who attack the institution and what they perceived as anti-democratic? I'm sorry, I don't think I followed the question. Could you? Where? Or maybe someone else. Well, where are the people, instead of attacking individual decisions, actually go at the institution, the Supreme Court itself? And I give you examples of Lincoln, Jefferson, the President Roosevelts, Obama. among others. Now, oh, there's who, some in the academic world, but I'm talking about public office holders. Right. Well, the, the, the president, um, uh, uh, within a week or so of the oral arguments in the healthcare case, he, he uh, gave a press conference and urged the court to embrace one, one view, one of the views I sketch in the book. Um, you see, I think there's no shortage of Republican uh, politicians, elected officials, who have denounced the Supreme Court at various points for judicial activism, for failing to act. One of the cases I talk about the book that didn't come up today is um, Kelo, the eminent domain case. And that, that case has basically become a litmus test uh, among uh, for Supreme Court nominees. Every, every nominee since that case came out in uh, 2005 has been, has been quizzed by the mostly the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee who say, well, you know, this is a terrible case. Do you agree with it? And, and try to pin, try to get the justices to, uh, or the, the justices to be, to take a position on that, to, to sound them out on that case. And then, of course, Roe v. Wade, it's the same thing. I mean, I think every, every Democratic member of Congress uh, would, would quiz a potential Supreme Court justice about their views on that. And don't forget, Citizens United, where President Obama tongue-lashed the justices uh, in front of us assembled members of Congress. So it does go on. Any, any other? Um, with that, um, a word or two about what happens next logistically before we thank our panel. Uh, we will be filing out here, uh, going up the stairs, uh, or if you prefer the elevator to the George M. Yeager Conference Center on the second floor. If you are looking for a restroom, you will find them when you're walking uh, on the second floor, look for the yellow wall. Uh, there will be a buffet lunch there. Um, Damon Root will be signing his books, and you should all buy one. Uh, there um, uh, will be other written materials out there, too. Uh, please join me in thanking our wonderful panel today. Thank you.